Turn to Mark chapter 1. As we walk through this over the last three years, there were significant themes that I began to see that really began to emerge themselves um, as we walked verse by verse through John's gospel. And so since we had finished that verse by verse walk, I wanted to go back and review some of these things and for us to, to take a look closely um, at Christ. So we're going to encounter Jesus' teaching on the other side of the feeding of what we know as the 5,000. And we're going to see that there is a deeper need that we have, and that is hungering for the words of Jesus more than anything. And so in the heart of Galilee, somewhere near the Sea of Galilee, up on a mountainside, a great crowd, likely many of them going to the Passover, this is the second Passover that we know takes place in uh, Jesus' ministry, the first one is in two, John 2.13. The next one's in John 6.4, which is what we will encounter today. And then again, the last Passover in John 12.12. 12. And so sometime in the spring, probably April, one year before the cross, is this encounter on the mountainside where Jesus feeds um, what is known as the 5,000. Why are the people gathering? Well, we know that they're coming to Jerusalem, but we also know from John 6, 2, that we'll read in a little bit, is that they are following Jesus because of the miracles. He has been been doing a tremendous amount of miracles, and because of that, they have been following Him and gathering. You can imagine that people are bringing relatives to finding out where is Jesus, and they're getting their friends, they're getting neighbors, people who live in their community, and they are trying to get these people into the presence of Jesus. Word is out on what he can do and the power that is connected with him. But what begins to happen, and we see it in fruition in John chapter 6, is that the people began to be more enamored by the miracles, which is easy to be enamored by, and less enamored by Jesus. We will see today that they have a hard time with what he communicates about himself. And so I want to kind of show you why, what Jesus' main focus was connected in Mark's gospel so we can see the consistent theme. So look with me, and we're going to read a lot today, if that's all right with everybody. Mark chapter 1, let's read 9 through 11 first. So in those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, and with you... I am well pleased. What an incredible day that must have been. Jesus immediately goes from that. In verse 12, the Spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness. Now let me just stop there. Look up here just for a moment. This is important to see. So this incredible event has happened. Um, The forerunner has been baptizing. It's time for Jesus to begin his public ministry. He comes where John is baptizing in the Jordan River in this region where people have been coming for quite a while Jesus um, submits to John to baptize him. He's under the water. He comes back up and the Father speaks. We see from some of the other gospel accounts of this that that you could hear the Father speaking. And it was an amazing moment. And so the Father speaks, this is my Son and I am well pleased in Him. And I want you to note this, from this great event, and sometimes this happens in our lives as well, we go from a place where Things are good. There's been an incredible spiritual experience. 
And note what happens in the very next breath. Sometimes God leads us into places that are more difficult for us. So Jesus goes from his baptism immediately into the wilderness. And it says there, led by the Spirit. The Spirit did this leading, taking him where he would be, who would do some battle with Satan there in the temptation sequence that's there. And he would be victorious. So let's read it again. Look at 12 and 13. So the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. I just want to stop there just for a second. I think that's amazing. Israel would have lions. They would have other ferocious beasts and other animals. And I want you to note that the animals who had been created by God were gathering around him as he is in the wilderness. And they are coming. Why? Because all of creation is going to do what? Worship him. It's going to exalt him. And so here they are doing that. Well, John uh, is um, arrested. And then we, we see this in verse 14. Look with through there. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying... The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now go with me to verse 21. So Jesus calls, and in between that, he, he calls some of the first disciples. Mark 1, 21 through 23. And they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit and cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. That's a church disruption right there. Jesus is teaching. A demon is inside a person in in the Bible study time. Speaks out. I acknowledge who you are. You are the Son of God. You are the Holy One. Well, Jesus does something amazing. 25, Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And this is probably an understatement. But this is the best sometimes you can do with words. And they were all amazed. So they questioned among themselves saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. Go now to verse 35. So Jesus, the next part there had been healing, um, Mark one thirty five. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, Everybody is looking for you. And he said to them, Well, let us go on to the next towns that I preach, that I may preach there also. Now note this, for this is why... I came out. Now I want to just stop here just for a moment and I want to kind of, I'm trying to set the stage for us where we can see what's going to happen when we get to John chapter 6 here in just a moment. 
So what's the main thing that Jesus was going to do according to Mark 138 there? He was going to what? Preach. That was what was going to drive his ministry. He would go to all the villages, the cities. He would go to mountainsides. He would do so in a boat. He would, be, he would do so on the shores of the, of the Sea of Galilee. He would do this in people's homes. He would do it beside a well with a woman one day. Jesus' calling was, was that he would come and he would proclaim the gospel. If we remember in John chapter 18, Jesus is having the conversation with Pilate and he tells Pilate, for this purpose I came that I would come to declare the truth. And I would, I'm about the truth and about speaking the truth and declaring the truth. This was the mission. But the miracles, Jesus would continue to do those, would begin to start kind of in the people's minds and would kind of begin to overshadow. Instead of, instead of the miracles driving the people to worship Jesus, they just were seeking Jesus or coming to Jesus for the miracle and not going beyond the sign. The signs of the miracles were done to drive people to Christ. But eventually what happened was people just were seeking what the hand of God could give them and not the one who was giving it. And so that's why at the very end of, think about this for a moment, at the end of three years of going all over from the north to the south and the east and the west, and even in Samaria, Jesus was doing miracles. I mean, we're talking sometimes, we see it early in, in Mark's gospel in chapter 1 there. He spent all night long healing people and casting out demons. Here's, here's what happened eventually. How does on that Friday morning that the whole crowd shouts, crucify him, crucify him, we would rather, we would rather have Barabbas the criminal and the murderer, and the insurrectionists, than Jesus who has only done good all over the land, all over Israel. How does that happen? How does it get to that place? Is that eventually what happened was, is that people were not truly seeking Jesus. The purpose of the signs were to drive the people to Jesus, but they began to just want the miracle. And so from the beginning, The people were astonished by, in the beginning, they were astonished by the teaching of Jesus. But over time, the greater focus began um, from the people to be centered on the miracles. And so as we come to John 6 here in just a moment, this is definitely the case. Now think about the characteristics of the crowd that are following Jesus. There are people deeply spiritually weighed down under the heavy hand of the religious system that the religious leaders had set up. The crowds that were seeking and following him were full of sick people. They were diseased people, deeply hurting people, people who had spent their life savings trying to get healed. You had parents whose kids are possessed by demons and they're trying to get their kids into the presence of Jesus. So desperate they are that they have left their homes. Some are on their way to the Passover. Some are just desperate that they've got to to think in their mind they've got to get to the presence of Jesus and to get their relative or get themselves or to get a friend in the presence of Jesus. And out of their desperation on this day that we're about to read in a moment, nobody has any food. Nobody's brought any food except for one little boy, the only one. And I've said this before, he must have been the only one that had heard Jesus preach before. And they knew, man, that guy talks forever. And so I'm going to be ready and prepared halfway through this, to make it. 
Let me ask this question to all of us. Have you ever really been desperate? I mean, deeply desperate to get your life or to get somebody else's life into the presence of Jesus. And you've watched them and you've watched yourself pursue all kinds of things that cannot bring what we need in our lives. For only Jesus can do that. And I'm hoping today that we have come into this place with a heart of desperation for the presence of Jesus to move in us, to awaken us, and to help us. Now, before we get to John 6, I'm almost there. I've been in the American Airlines Center, so I looked it up. It seats 21,000 people. That's with the luxury seat boxes and everything else. From what we believe in most scholars in in crowds in those days, when they talk about feeding 5,000 people, it is estimated when you talk about people heading to Jerusalem for the Passover, people seeking Jesus on this day for healing, You've got upwards to 20,000 people that are present on this day. American Airlines Center seats 21,000. Now, I want you to picture this. Put 21,000 people in the American Airlines Center this morning and no concession stands. Nobody coming by hollering out peanuts. Jesus having a conversation with the disciples and one of them found a little boy who'd come into the arena with a lunch and they bring it and they give it to Jesus and he takes it and he blesses it and I want you to picture within an hour's time every person in every seat in the American Airlines Center has eaten until they are completely satisfied and full this is what happened on that day this is not a little task this is absolutely amazing so they're walking around handing food to people And none of the baskets empty. They continue in the moment to replenish themselves. We can just imagine, how would you respond if you were there that day? Would you get a little excited? Would you not go, this is incredible. Everything that we've heard about Him. Is this the Messiah? And they're wondering these kind of things. So Now I want you to go to John chapter 6, please. And we're going to read a lot here, like the whole chapter, almost. So here's what I want to do. We're going to, we're going to kind of walk through this. We're going to leave out the middle part of it because we're going to come back to the middle part of it to the end. And I want to pose this question this morning. Y'all ready? Say, say, tell me if you're ready. Ready? Okay. I want to share with us this morning, I think, something significant. How do do we maintain our faith and not eventually walk away? Do you know anybody who's walked away from the faith? Do you know people like that? That they were with you and you walked with them and they invested in you and you invested in them and, and you were tight spiritually with one another. And now you look around and they're out of the faith and They've checked out. How do we avoid, or how can we avoid, missing the point of faith? Missing the point of who Jesus is and walking away. I want to share this morning what I think are the key things to keep us deeply connected in the faith and not walking away. This is critical. 
what we're going to look at today. And we're going to see on the front part and the back side of this what happens, the excitement of the people, and then the unexcitement of the people. And then we'll look in the middle as the key things. All right, let's John 6, verse 1. So after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because of the signs that he was doing on the sick. And Jesus went up on the mountain and he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. And lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we going to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. And Philip answered him, Lord, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. And one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? And so Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, and so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. And Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. That's amazing. As much as they wanted. Somebody eventually said, pass the fish. And they did. There was enough. Because our God, listen, our God does super abundant kind of things. That's who he is. Twelve. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And when the people saw that he, what he had done, the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum, and it was now dark. And Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea was rough because of a strong wind was blowing. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. And then they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. And so now we're at the next day. Look at 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had only been one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. So they're wondering, where's Jesus? He didn't go with them. He must still be around here. Other boats, 23, other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus wasn't there, nor his disciples... They themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. All looks good, initially. 25. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Now watch what happens. What's happened from the day before? Deeply moved by the supernatural. Now they've woken up the next morning and they're not not desiring supernatural. They just want him to give bread again. 
Can, would he feed them again? Would he, would, could he just do something like that? And so Jesus calls them out on it and just says, listen, you're not, you're not here because of the signs. I know your heart. You're here because I put something in your stomachs. And so look at 27. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. And then they said to him, well, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they, okay, I'm going to stop there. Now I want you to go to verse 41. We're going to come back to that section and pull out some principles there. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? And Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he is from God. He has seen the Father. And truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, verse 50, so that... No, one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give him of the life of this world is my flesh. And then the Jews, 52, disputed amongst themselves, saying, How can this man give his flesh to eat? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. And whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. And as the living Father has sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. And whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Let me just stop there for a moment, and I want to I note a few things. So they have this great failure to think spiritually. Jesus is not saying you, you need to eat of my real flesh. This is not cannibalism. This is not drinking my literal blood. We see in verse 42 that they think that they know him. Is this not Jesus? This is Joseph's boy. We know Joseph's boy. You know, they used to, they used to build tables and they used to build stuff, you know. We know him. So how is this guy saying... We know where he's from. How is he saying now that he's come down from heaven? In verse 45, Jesus says, look, my words should tell you who I am. They, they should tell you this. The scripture is being fulfilled in your midst. Everybody's going to be taught by God when the Messiah comes. That's the scripture that, and that's what Jesus is talking about here. If you are hearing me, you are learning from the Father because I have come from the Father So you come to me for your life and your sustenance and for everything you don't look for physical bread. 
And Jesus says, listen, I've seen the Father. I, I know the Father. And if you will believe this, you will have eternal life because I am the bread of life. And then they're talking about their ancestors. Their ancestors ate the manna. And Jesus says, listen, yeah, they ate the manna, but are any of them around? Did it give them eternal life? Look around. Has anybody survived from the generations past because they ate the manna? And so Jesus is saying, no, they didn't. But I'm the one who gives bread. I'm the one who gives something all the way to eternal life. Verse 52, they fail to think spiritually again. And then he speaks about the work of the cross in 53 through 56. And he talks about the importance of his blood and his body and and that we must take him into our lives. That's the point of all of that teaching. Verse 57, God had ordained that work that was going on all around Israel. And then in 58, Jesus tells them, I am more than manna. I am more than manna. I am the Messiah. I am the fulfillment of manna. Spiritual gatherings, by the way, look, with, look in verse 59. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Did it go over well? We'll see it in a moment. You, a lot of us are familiar with it. Did this sermon go over well in church that day? No. Here's a lesson. It's an important lesson before we get into the heart of this this morning. The church should say things that speaks the truth. And if it stirs things up, it stirs things up. We are the kind of people, we are to be the kind of people whose deep passion is truth. And so on this day, is Jesus speaking the truth or a lie? I think you know the answer, right? It's the truth. Did the truth stir things up on this day? Absolutely, the truth stirred things up on this day. And so for us, this is important that sometimes we have to deal with truth. We have to deal with truth when we study the scripture in a small group. We deal with truth here on a Sunday morning, on Wednesday nights with the students, in conversation with coffee somewhere. We talk about the truth and we deal sometimes with the uncomfortable nature of coming face to face with what is true. Knowing that inside of us, our flesh cries out to not want to walk with God. And so we have to crucify our flesh. We have to submit ourselves to God daily, sometimes second by second in some moments, right? Minute by minute, submitting our lives to Him. And so here's Christ on this day in the synagogue teaching these things. and The people are hearing this and they've, they've gone from, oh, we love the signs to we just want food. Can you do the food thing again? Can you do that again? And so Jesus calls them out on it. And then look what happens. Look at verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it. Now, here's, don't miss this. Jesus had 12 that he called out specifically. We call them more apostles. Apostles means sent ones. But they also had other people that followed them around. If you remember, there were women that followed in the group. And they gave up their, their financial means to help take care of Jesus and the twelve. There were others that followed. And so there's a crowd that consistently, when they would go from town to town, village to village, place to place, they were in this group with Jesus. They've heard His teaching. Look, watch, watch this. They have been present when demons have been cast out. They have been present 
when somebody's hand didn't work and all of a sudden it worked. They were present, following in the group, when dead people came to life. So these are, these are not the crowd people. These are people who have also left their homes like the twelve did. And they're following around Jesus. They're seeing the things, hearing the things. Look at 60. So when many of His disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in Himself that His disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where He was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is how much help? What does it say? No help. The flesh is no help at all. And so the words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray Him. And He said, This is why I told you that no one can come to Me unless it is granted Him by the Father. And one of the most tragic verses in the New Testament is in verse 66. And after this, many of His disciples turned back and no longer walked with Him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? And I tell you, sometimes Peter got it. Let's not be hard on him all the time. He got it. Lord, to whom shall we go? Note what he says there. You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Now let me have your attention here. All eyes on me just for a second again before we get back into the text. This will always be the case. There will be people who follow for a while and they will disappear. Why do they ultimately disappear? I think John 6 tells us ultimately why they disappear. They disappear because they take offense at the words of Jesus. They didn't like the saying. Hey, we like that blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We like that kind of stuff. But when you're calling me to die, when you're calling me that I've got to take you, I've got to take you in. I've got to, I've got to take the work of the cross the blood and the body of Jesus, that work that happened. And I've got to take that in. I don't like that. Can you tell me something else that will make me feel better today? To kind of help me get through the day? And this is the crowd. This is always going to be the case. This has been the case in the Old Testament. Just read about the nation of Israel. Their history is littered with not the majority of the time walking with God, but the majority of time what? Rebelling against God. It got so bad that when the, northern, when the two kingdoms split after Solomon, because Solomon had a divided heart, and so the, the kingdom split, that God says to Jeroboam, um, 
You can have the ten tribes to the north. And you can lead them. But you better follow what the word says. And immediately Jeroboam, fearful that those in the northern kingdom would go to Jerusalem to worship. He doesn't want them to go to Jerusalem because then they'll think about um, that the temple is there, authentic worship is there. Jeroboam does this, so I don't want the people going there. So in both Dan and Bethel, he sets up idol worship, the first king, creates temple prostitution, makes two golden calves, and sets them up. And the people turn their hearts away from God and they begin to worship. This has always kind of been the case, sadly. Remember in Noah's day, how many people were righteous in Noah's day? One. Noah. Only one in his day. That God, when he looked on the earth, it was so corrupt. So here's the case. It happens still today. There are those who hear the teaching and go, I don't want to have anything to do with that. Just tell me, tell me good stuff. And can I be honest this morning? This is good stuff. Why? Because it's the truth. Even though it might get up in our grill, as the word says, saying says. Sometimes that is what we need to get our hearts right to walk with God. And it's always going to be the case that there will be those that walk away and it will always be the case that there will be an authentic remnant of people who just love God. And they love God deeply and they're willing to count the cost and to, to walk with Him. And so how do we avoid that? That's my question to us this morning. How do we avoid Are there some things that we can know that will avoid us walking years with Jesus to eventually just turn our back and be done with it all? Are there some rock-solid things that we can stake our life upon that will make a huge difference. That when, that, that when our, however long it is that we get to live, and I hope everybody gets to live to a ripe old age. And if we all get to live, it's as old as some of you in the room this morning. If we get to live there, and we look back over our lives, and we say it was worth it to walk with Him. He was my treasure. He was my utmost prize to walk and to know with Him. Are there some things that we can stand on that will get us there? And I think John 6 shows the movement of excited about miracles. Can I just have another piece of bread today? To now at the end hearing the teaching, oh, I don't like that teaching, and walking away. What are some things that we need to know? So let's do that. Look at 32 through 36. And I want to talk about that Jesus is the bread sent down from heaven to satisfy our spiritual hunger. I know we read it a while ago. Let's read it again. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the real bread of God, the true bread of God, the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And so they said to Him, Sir, give us this bread also. Do you remember what the woman at the well said about the water? Can, I have, can you give me this water always? They say the same thing that the woman at the well said. 
And so Jesus said to them, I am the bread. Here's the deal. It's not the manna from the past, but I am, I am the bread of life. And whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. So here's a rock-solid thing today. If you and I want to finish this life and walk with God intimately, walking with Him, we'll never do it perfectly, but we want to walk with Him, and we want to finish the faith. We want to, in the over arching thing of our life is there's a pursuit of God that dominates our lives and, and, we, and we love Him. It will happen. You will get to that place. I will get to that place. If we make Jesus alone and His words the ultimate sustenance of our lives every moment of the day, we must take Jesus in. Yes, in salvation, but also daily reading the Word, eating the Word, taking the Word into our lives. The manna came from the heart of God in the Old Testament. But it only went to the Jews in that particular time period. And it only sustained their physical lives. But Jesus came for the world, the whole world. He said it there. And He gives eternal life. Let me remind us about Jesus as the bread of life connected to the manna just for a moment. And I could go on all day about this. The manna came at night. Jesus came when men were in deep darkness. The manna met physical needs. Jesus meets spiritual needs. Manna was a gift from God. Jesus is to the Jews. Jesus is the gift of God to the world. Manna had to be picked up and eaten. Jesus must be received and taken in. Manna was small, pointing to Christ's humility and becoming a man and being here. Manna was round, indicating the eternal nature of God, um, that He never had a beginning and He will never have an end. Manna was white, indicating His purity and His holiness. Manna was sweet, emphasizing the goodness and the satisfaction that comes when we come to know Christ. Manna was a free gift from God. You cannot buy it with money and you cannot buy your salvation. It cannot be earned by us. Manna was offered to every Jew every day within their grasp. If they didn't want it, they didn't pick it up, but it was offered. Manna lying on the earth was lifted up, and they would put it in a golden vessel and taken in to the presence, indicating this lifting up that Jesus would rise up. He would be resurrected. Manna rested on the earth for a little while, and for just a brief amount of time was Jesus on the earth. And the bread of life is the very person of Christ. It's not physical food. If we're going to get to a place where we eventually in our life walk with Him intimately and we don't walk away, we will do so by building the practice into our lives of eating of the Word of God and taking the words of Jesus into our life. He is the bread of heaven. And to live this way means that we are called to count the cost. I was reading not too long ago about people um, about 150 years ago when the big fur trade, or probably maybe longer than that now, but the big fur trade was heading west in America. 
And there would be people that they would come to St. Louis. That was kind of the embarking place. They would leave St. Louis to head west into the Rocky Mountains and the places to do the fur trade. And they would come. The young men would come from the east. And they would come and they would meet with the fur traders in St. Louis. And the fur traders would tell the stories of what it's like to deal with Indians or Native Americans. Um, Got to be correct. Sorry. Um, bears. Mountain lions extreme cold. I read the story where the majority of those who came wanting to go, you know what they did? The majority? They went back home. Because they heard about the cost and they weren't willing to pay it. So the question comes to us, if we're going to finish well, we will finish well when we take serious the truth that Jesus is the true bread of heaven and we must take Him in, yes, in salvation, but we must take Him in in His Word. Look at 37. Here's another thing that will give us encouragement and strength to stay walking with Him. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I love this reality. For those of us who know Jesus this morning in salvation, I am in Him. I am in Him. I am in Him today. You know where He is today? He is seated at the right hand of His Father. So where am I spiritually today? I am seated with Jesus at the right hand of His Father in majesty and glory. This is where Jesus is. This is where we are for those of us who are in Him. I am in Him, and He is where? In us. So notice what Jesus says here. Second firm principle. We will not turn and walk away by embracing the words of God and taking the words of God in. Secondly, we will faithfully follow when we know this, that our salvation and our lives, if we belong to Him, they are secure in who He is. Look at 37 again. All, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. The drawing of the Lord happens every single time when somebody comes to faith in Christ. It begins with one initial thing. The Father's working on a person's life to bring that person to Jesus. God the Father brings every true believer to Christ. Note what it says there. All that the Father gives me, gifts to me, they, it doesn't say might come to me. you got to pray, O men. No, it says this, they will come to me. This is an absolute truth that we can trust in. Those people that the Father gives to Jesus they will come to Jesus. And Jesus here says that the Father is sovereign in the salvation of people by His incredible work of grace. By the way, He's sending, gifting to Jesus, people in that moment whose lives are a mess and sinful. They don't, by their very nature, don't even want Jesus. And the Father gifts these people to Jesus. And Jesus does this unbelievable thing 
We are transformed in salvation. And now what do we want? We want Him. We want to follow Him. We want to know who He is. These people in the text were seeking fulfillment in a temporal need. And had Jesus produced bread again right in that moment, they would have needed Him to do it the next day and the next day. But He didn't come to do that kind of work. He came to do an inside work in our hearts to be the bread of heaven. And for us to when we come into relationship with Him. There's a beauty here that is undeniable and that will sustain us. It sustains me. You ever do an honest evaluation and look at your own life? And you're just like, wow, I've slipped a little bit or um, I've lost some passion, I've lost some desire, whatever the case may be. And, and we've got to be careful there not to beat ourselves up. Okay, Be careful not to beat ourselves up too much. Learn from those moments. But I need you to hear this this morning. All that the Father gives me, they will come to me. And when they come to me, Jesus says this, I will never cast them ever away from me. So when you and I know beyond a doubt that I am His, He is mine, I am in Him. He guards my salvation. 1 Peter 1.18, I believe it is. That He guards our salvation and our salvation is secure in who He is. It's being kept for a time ready to be revealed in the future. When we know that, that I can't blow this. I can't blow this. I have been given to Jesus The Father has brought me to Jesus. Jesus has received me. And when Jesus receives me, He will not ever go, I don't want that person anymore. Get Doke out of here. When we know that in our bones, that we belong to Him, that He has done that work, boy, that can build some confidence in your life to know that I am absolutely secure in my salvation with Him. You may be familiar with a guy named John Bunyan. He wrote a book called Pilgrim's Progress. Um, It's one of the great works of Christianity of all time. Early in his faith, Bunyan really struggled with, am I in the kingdom or out of the kingdom? And he he wrestled with it. He tried to find security. How do do I know that I know that I know that I'm in Christ? He finally got to a place where he wanted to stop longing for that and wondering about that. So before he wrote Pilgrim's Progress, Bunyan was kind of a legalistic kind of guy. He was really tough on others and really tough on himself. And he struggled and struggled and struggled until he finally came to John 6, verse 37. And when he really grasped what John 6, 37 was saying, it brought about a freedom in his life and he realized that believing on Christ was the key to never being cast away from Christ. So I believe that when you and I know this reality, it does that kind of work. Here's the third thing. Our salvation is secure because Jesus came to do the will of the Father. And when He came to do the will of the Father, He accomplished the will of the Father, which was to bring about our salvation. 
So as the Father brings us to Jesus, and Jesus receives us, and He says, I'm not going to cast you out, it, it's, that happens because Jesus accomplished the will of the Father. So look at me in 38 through 40. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me. Listen to what Jesus says. He's defining for us what the will of the Father was for Him. This is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing. I should lose nothing. I want to emphasize that. I should lose nothing of all that He has given to me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. So I just will say this, really important. Jesus accomplished the will of the Father. That's verse 38. The will of the Father that Jesus accomplished, that Jesus would, did you hear it? Would lose nothing that the Father entrusted to Him. And the will of the Father is that we would look on the Son and we would believe in Him. You see these two hands here? For about four or five years now, I've had issues with these hands. For a while there, I, I couldn't snap with my right hand. I had an issue with this tendon here. It got caught on this thing, and, uh, and my finger would do this when I tried to snap. I, I can't do it over here because this same finger on the other hand doesn't work. It gets stuck every time I snap, and I wake up in the middle of the night, and this finger is bent like that, and i got to pop it back up, and this is my left-handed doke life at this particular point in time. So I'm finding that I'm dropping things a lot now. I, can't, can't, I, I still can't fathom that my phone screen is not destroyed, and I've had to you know, replace it almost every week. I drop it constantly. I used to not ever drop it. I drop keys. I drop cups. I drop a lot of stuff. And I want you to hear today. If we have been placed in the very hands of God, which John 10 speaks about, He does not drop us. Jesus there says, I will lose nothing. I will lose no one. I will lose nothing of those whom the Father gives to me. And when you and I know that, when we know that, again, deep inside of us, it gives us security to know this, that I can't blow this. Now, I can make a mistake, but I am His. I am in Him. And so, therefore, because Jesus came to do the will of the Father, that does a dramatic work, an incredible work in me. So Jesus is going to come back to the theme. Look at verse 44 now. Same thing He said. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. We pursue a lot of things. So let me tell you a brief story about my life. Maybe I've said this, maybe I haven't. I was playing basketball one day at First Baptist Church of Amarillo. And back in the day, I could shoot hoop. I could. And I was playing with a bunch of friends, and up above their family life center was a walking track. There was a very short, strawberry, blonde, or more red girl walking up there, and I went, wow. And so I said to my friend, Mike, who's that? 
And he said, that's Pam Henderson, and she's in my Sunday school class. And so I shoved him and said, why have you not introduced me? And he said, because she has a boyfriend. I said, well, if you'll introduce me, I can fix that. (laughs) So he introduced me that day, and it didn't fix it that day. But eventually, over time, I pursued her, and she became mine. She was a little hard to get initially, but eventually she became the woman that I have as my wife, the mother of my children, and the one that I want to grow old with. I pursued her. But I want to tell you something that's even more amazing than human relationships. Did you hear what Jesus is saying here? He leads us. The Father leads us. The Father leads us to His beloved Son. That's a pursuing that is way beyond a marriage relationship. God, the Eternal Father, Sovereign Lord of the universe, this one who loved the world, that He gave His one and only Son, He pursues you and I in a way where He guides us and draws us to His Son. What an incredible reality today to know that. That this is the work of the Father. And again, this sustains us to walk with Him for the remainder of our days. Because do you think He just stops when we come to know Christ? No, He's continuing to draw us and move us and guide us into a deeper relationship with His Son. So the drawing of the Father of our lives to Jesus, who will not let us go, who will not cast us out. And again, note there, no one, no one, no one, the word's clear, no one can come to Jesus unless the Father who sent Jesus draws Him. And I find it incredibly amazing because at 17 years old, I didn't really understand it. Now I can look back and I understand it, that the Father was drawing me to Jesus. Didn't know it. But when it happened, I knew it. It was transforming. Lastly, we should think about this more. I don't know if you noticed there, he said it four times. In verse 39, in verse 40, in verse 44, in verse 54. On the last day, what's Jesus going to do to those that are his? He's going to raise them up. He's going to raise us up. And I know I've said this before, but it probably bears repeating. Look, up, look, look at this body right here. It's pretty impressive, right? So impressive. There's going to be a day when we are raised and our bodies are going to be perfected. We will move to a place where there is no sin, living in the presence of God. You know what will motivate you to walk with God for the remainder of your days? Knowing this, that it's worth it here to do it, to walk with Him and to know Him and to know that the Father's drawing us to Him. We, Jesus receives us. The Father draws us, gifts us to Jesus. Jesus receives us. The Spirit births us. We are now in Jesus and on and on. These incredible, glorious grace gifts that become ours are ours. And one of the greatest ones is that one day He will raise us up out of our graves and raise us up 
giving clear indication that He's the sovereign Lord of our lives. Note there, we don't raise ourselves up, do we? He does. And when He raises us up on the last day, we will live with Him forever and ever and ever. The problem comes in this. I want to close with an illustration. About three years ago, in a business somewhere here in America, a lady was listening to one of her co-workers have a conversation with her boss. She shared this conversation. The young woman was in her 20s, working for this company. She was a writer. The boss was an editor and kind of guiding some of the writing that was happening and and, and taking place. And so the boss um, did some editing on the young woman's work. And sometimes sometimes our work needs editing. Mine does. I I sometimes, I don't know how it is with you, sometimes I type sentences and I'll read that sentence and and it's, it's a good sentence. Somebody else will read it and said, you've left out two words. In my mind, I know those two words are in that sentence. I meant them to be in the sentence. They're not there. And so, so this boss was doing some editing. The particular edit was this. And uh, Mark, you don't need to worry about that. I don't know if you found it. But um, she had misspelled the word hamster. She had spelt it hamster with a P instead of hamster. So she had written like spinning in a hamster wheel with a P in the draft. So the boss edited that from hamster to hamster. So the boss makes this. The young woman is upset about this, and and this is what the young woman says. So the, the boss kindly said, listen, there's no P in hamster. It's hamster. It's not hamster. But the young woman replied and said, you don't know that. I learned how to spell it with a P in it. So that's how I spell it. So the boss consult said, well, why don't we look at the dictionary and and let's look at that. And the woman said, I don't need to look in the dictionary. This is the way that I've always spelt it. And so we need to leave it just as it is. I spell it with a P and that's the way that I want it to continue to be this case. So the woman, the boss, said, instead of saying, are you serious, knucklehead? Said, look, I know edits sometimes can be difficult to go over sometimes, especially when you're working on new kinds of things and as you grow in your career. But this is a necessary process that makes us all better at what we do. She continued to be mad, and this is not the end of the story. She gets on the phone with her mother. And talks to her mother about, Mom, I've always spelt hamster with a P, hamster. And I don't know what the problem is with my boss. She's hurt my feelings and upset. And so you've, you've been there before at Walmart and people have their phone on speakerphone and you get to join in and listen in. So she's at her work and she's got her mother on speakerphone. And her mother's affirming the girl's perspective that the boss is wrong, that it is okay to spell hamster, hamster. The story goes on where it continues to be this case and she just gets angrier and wants to go 
to the boss's boss to report what her boss has done. And I know you're going, what in the world is the point? There is a point, and I hope you see it. We do that to God all the time. He's big boss, and he's set up truth. And there are so many who say, no, I can do this with the P. I don't have to follow that. I don't have to listen to that. I can do whatever I want to do, and you need to cow down to what I want you to do. And if we're going to live like that, ignoring truth, ignoring absolute truth, ignoring objective truth, and just living by subjective truth, then we will eventually, I'm just telling you, I've been in this for a long time. Those of you who are older and you've walked with God for a long time, have you not seen many people just walk away? If truth is not our guide, and the foundation of what Christ speaks here in John chapter 6 is not our way, the potential is there that one day we just turn our back on it. There were probably literally 75 to 100 people on that day who said, I don't want to hear anything that Jesus has to say anymore. And they had seen the resurrections, the legs that couldn't walk, walk, the leprosy healed. And they didn't want to hear his words anymore. So how do we respond? We respond in this way. We want more of Jesus. Period. I want more of him. 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 In every aspect of our lives. That we quit thinking that the bread of this world somehow is going to get us somewhere. It is, it'll get you somewhere here. But it's not going to get you to heaven. Only he who came down from heaven, who is the bread of life, is going to guide us and sustain us the rest of our days. So our prayer becomes, I want more of you. I want more of you. Let's pray together.